Today's headlines shout of battles with the communist hordes in Korea, of red riots in Rome and Paris and Berlin. But there's another secret battle taking place right here, right now. An unheralded, underground fight between communism and democracy for the youth of America. That opening from a 1952 comic book story called Backyard Battleground clearly lays out the stakes. The protagonist, a young woman named Anne Booth, narrates the tale and confesses how she came to betray her country and her lover. The story begins when the red-headed Anne is a child, growing up in poverty during the Great Depression. Anne's father is a good man, but he cannot find work, leaving little Anne to endure a childhood of hunger and humiliation. The years pass. Somehow, Anne's family saves enough money to send her to college. In this exciting new environment, she finally has the opportunity to learn and have fun. She dates a handsome athlete named Bart, who introduces her to some new ideas. He takes her to a club that he has joined, and this club is actually a communist cell. Communist speakers deliver oratories on the evils of capitalist oppression, and Anne is impressed. Her boyfriend persuades her that the commies are on her side. Sufficiently indoctrinated, Anne enlists in the cause, but becomes concerned when her comrades grow increasingly violent. They lead protests, shouting, Down with the USA! Her boyfriend beats up a small shop owner to intimidate him into paying higher wages to his workers. After this troubling incident, Anne starts to date another man. She takes her new boyfriend Bill to a Communist Party meeting, but he is not so readily converted. Although impressed by talk of helping the common people, Bill deplores a speech that denounces the U.S. effort in Korea as an all-out war on defenseless Koreans. Concluding that this communist club is just a front for subversives and traitors, he decides to go to the FBI and expose this whole rotten mess. Anne panics and asks her old boyfriend Bart to talk to Bill. Instead, the communist Bart murders the heroic informer. The police arrive to arrest the communists, but Anne, too, is sent to prison for her part in Bill's murder. Returning to the present, Anne laments that her vile indoctrination in communism murdered him, surely as if her own hands had pulled the trigger. Significantly, this somber tale appeared in a romance comic called Daring Confessions. In these anxious times, even love, it seems, could not escape the Cold War. This is Fallen Walls, Open Curtains. They say we sail tonight And we may have to fight I want with all my might to stay But I'll go for God and my baby You know I have to go And dear, I'll miss you so For God What I just read is an excerpt from the beginning of Reds, Romance, and Renegades, which is Chapter 5 of Bradford W. Wright's book Comic Book Nation, The Transformation of Youth Culture in America, 
a chapter that details early 1950s in comics just prior to the attacks on the medium by Dr. Frederick Wertham via his book Seduction of the Innocent and the subsequent congressional hearings. And it is a number of comics of the day that engage in the ideology that drove the Red Scare, which is going to be the focus of the episode I have for you, as I'll be joined by Luke Giaconetti in the second segment to talk about anti-communist comics, especially war comics, such as Atomic War, World War III, and Is This Tomorrow? This is episode two of Fallen Walls Open Curtains, a pop culture affidavit miniseries that is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries, and as I said, I will be looking at those comics today, but before I do that, I'm going to get into my first segment, which is the history of 30 years ago and the fall of communism in Europe, beginning with the fall of the Berlin Wall in November of 89 and concluding at the end of 91 with the fall of the Soviet Union. I'll be starting with that history and then spend the back half of the episode recounting some piece of popular culture that either reflect or shape the Cold War. That's going to be the typical format for this series from this point onward. Now, last episode I was not on format. I talked exclusively about the fall of the Berlin Wall. I looked at the events themselves. I looked at the history of the wall. I looked at The Spy Who Came In From the Cold by John Le Carre. But this time around, I'm not melding it all together. I have the communist paranoia of comics, but I also have the just simply the historical events between November 1989 and February of 1990. I got a lot of this from Wikipedia and fill in some of my own recollection, but some just kind of a rundown of events and some observations so you can kind of see what was going on post the fall of the wall. So on November 10th, the Bulgarian Communist Party leader, uh, Todor Zyukov, and, and I apologize for butchering a lot of these names. Um, I'm going to do my best to pronounce them as we go forward through the show. He's replaced by Petar Maldanov, and he, uh, and he changes the party's name to the Bulgarian Socialist Party. So this ends 45 years of communist rule in that country. In November 15th, uh, Lech Walesa, who is the Polish solidarity leader, the one who uh, would be the revolutionary and eventual president of Poland post-Soviet rule addresses the United States Congress, and I think he's going to get his own spotlight uh, in a future episode in terms of just some of the historical background, because he is one of the more prominent characters in, in this whole drama as it plays out in the late 80s and early 90s. But on 11-17, November 17th, all the way to the end of the year, you have what's referred to in Czechoslovakia as the Velvet Revolution. This is the overthrow of communism in this country, a country that had once resisted Soviet rule back in the 1960s, but had that resistance squashed. This revolution begins in Prague with student demonstrations, uh, but these are beaten back by riot police on the 17th. On the 24th, the general secretary of the Czech Communist Party, Milos Jakes, or Jakes um, and other party leaders end up resigning, and it's response to the protests that are calling for free elections. Karl Urbanek takes his place. And those elections are announced a few days later on the 28th, as the Communist Party says it will give up its monopoly on power. The Prime Minister ends up resigning on the 1st of December, and Václav Havel, a former playwright, is elected the first post-communist president on December 29th of 1989. A little bit more on that uh, later in this segment, by the way. Now, East Germany's parliament ends its power monopoly on the 1st of December, and the entire party resigns the 3rd. 
There's the Malta summit between Gorbachev and Bush on the 3rd of December as well, and this is important because they meet and walk away from it saying essentially that the Cold War may be coming to an end. They acknowledge what's been going on in Eastern Europe and are, are realizing that they are on the precipice of something, a new era in, in global politics. What they would do to prepare for the era uh, remains to be seen at this point. On the 7th of December, in what's called the Singing, Re- Singing Revolution, Lithuania abolishes the party's monopoly on power, and this is important because Lithuania is a Soviet republic and part of the Soviet Union at this point. And Lithuania is one of the one of the ones that becomes more prominent um, in terms of the breakup of the actual Soviet Union as we get into 1991. The Romanian Revolution takes place in December of 1989, and I'll get into that in a moment in in way more detail, but it starts on the 17th of December when when rioters break into Communist Party buildings and cause an enormous amount of damage. The Brandenburg Gate opens on the 21st of December. Poland adopts a capitalist economic system and more or less quits the Warsaw Pact on New Year's Eve 1989. On the 11th of January 1990, in Lithuania, 300,000 people demonstrate for independence from the Soviet Republic. And in the 15th of January, Stasi HQ in East Berlin opens and thousands storm the building looking for their records. On January 22nd, the League of Communists in Yugoslavia gives up its monopoly on power. That is another story for a little bit of a spotlight in the historical context of an episode because of what would happen in Yugoslavia throughout the 1990s. Tiraspol Modova briefly declares independence on the 27th of January. The Polish United Workers Party is reorganized as the Social Democracy of the Republic of Poland on the 28th. Funny enough, McDonald's opens in Moscow on January 31st, 1990, which doesn't sound like a significant thing, but considering it's a big symbol of capitalism coming to an area like that, so that's why I decided to include it. Bush suggests that the United States cut its military presence in Europe, by the way, in the State of the Union uh, around the same time that year, and that is a significant significant statement considering our presence in Europe starting from 1945. The Communist Party of the Soviet Union votes to end its monopoly of power in 1990 on February 7th. And then there is the Open Skies NATO Warsaw Pact Summit. So you see over the course of these three months that, well, title of this particular uh, (laughs) podcast, Fallen Walls, Open Curtains, these things are starting to happen bit by bit, in some cases in big ways, but in some cases small and diplomatically. German reunification is agreed upon on February 13th, and then the uh, USSR agrees to begin removing all of its troops from Czechoslovakia in the end of February, on February 26th. Now, I'm going to be doing these as just kind of like, you know, reading Wikipedia rundown, Um, But then I'm going to spend a little bit of time in each of these historical segments going in depth on like one or two events. They may have been stuff that happened during this time, or they may have been stuff that are just kind of general to the period. What I would like to talk about are two particular revolutions that happened during these months, one in Czechoslovakia and the other one in Romania. And the reason for this is that they contrast like very, very uh, starkly. 
I find really notable is how, how quickly all of this happened. And I think a lot of people still, to this day, the fact that in 1989, the wall opens up and all of a sudden by 1991, the Soviet Union is done. And it seems like it happened almost literally overnight. And to me as a kid in seventh grade and in, in, in the suburbs, it did seem to happen overnight because I'd spent most of my childhood looking at you know, a lot of anti-communist stuff or, or, you know, the Russians are the bad guys or, or something very, you know, good guy, bad guy type of thing where, where the idea that something was going on behind the scenes, behind the curtain that was kind of tearing it apart from the inside uh, didn't occur to me. Even Chernobyl didn't register aside from that it was like a nuclear disaster. But then again, I was born in 77. So when 89 comes around, I'm 12, expecting a nine-year-old to understand the significance of, of Chernobyl, uh, you know, probably, you know, you're probably not going to get much. But yeah, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Romania are, are three of the more important revolutions. And I, and I think I might do a separate segment on Poland later on down the line. But Czechoslovakia and Romania, again, um, they're the culmination of what had been going on in some cases for years. I mentioned Czechoslovakia having a touch-and-go history with its Soviet overseers. In 1968, there was an anti-communist revolution of sorts uh, that was repressed and suppressed by Soviet military might, and the Soviets kept their military in the country for the remainder of the Cold War, which is why the removal of troops at the end of February or being announced at the end of February is such a huge thing. This was called the Prague Spring, by the way. And after those events, you have not only the military presence, but you have the secret police, you have dissidents eliminated, you have very what was very become very typical oppressive tactics for that day. But then you have perestroika and glass notes coming around in, in 1987, 88, 89, and that loosens things a little, up a little bit. And while the demonstrations that start are suppressed at first, economic problems start to grow. And this is something that I've noticed in a lot of my look at these things in that there's economic issues at the base of a lot of these revolutions that like where you have, you're always going to have dissidents in a government, you're always going to have ideologues, and you're going to have people who want a government to work one way or another. But when, when people are being forced to deal with poverty, and in some cases extreme poverty, that can lead to a more quick revolution than, say, talking about preserving your rights to something or another. And in the case of Czechoslovakia, and as we'll see Romania, economic hardship was a huge catalyst for these revolutions. Vaslav Havel, who I mentioned, he was, a, he was an imprisoned dissident and he was a playwright, but also turned politician, gained even more support throughout 88 and 89, and then the wall fell. And this is a big thing because about a week or two after the wall falls, you have November 17th, and this is a day that's known as International Students' Day because it commemorates in Europe students rising up against Nazis. But it's also because it's a day where student youth organizations tend to organize demonstrations. And they were significant in number. They were broken up by riot police. But after that, the entire theater district in Prague went on strike. And during the strike, the theater owners allowed demonstrators to use their stage to give speeches. And college students that went on strike did so. November 20th, there was a huge demonstration of 100,000 people in Prague. And these demonstrations and strikes cont continued for the better part of 10 days before the government finally resigned. 
there's now elections in November, and by the end of 89, as I mentioned, Czech communism is dead, and you have these striking students followed by a general strike among people like workers that became important and were the catalyst for this. And it was all done peacefully, which is really important. That was not what we would see in Romania. <laughs> Romania, you know, we, we, think of, we think of the Cold War and we think of the conflict and we, we expect something like a Korean War, a Vietnam War, the, uh, the, the wars in like Latin America, either through political assassinations or civil wars like the one in Nicaragua. When a government is overthrown by flat-out demonstrations, like in Czechoslovakia, you're like, wow, that's, and, and, and overthrown in a way that's just basically, yes, violence on the part of police, but eventually just they up and resign and are like, we're going to hold free elections and we're going to see who's voted in and, and a more Western-friendly ruler is elected, that, for me, that was pretty impressive. It's still pretty impressive to me that a revolution can happen so peacefully because you hear the word and you think of something that is way more violent uh, it has a way more violent con connotation in terms of politics. What you have here is, well, the Romanian Revolution that, that does follow that, um, follow that template. Romania has a violent overthrow of a dictator who was absolutely horrible. Nicolae Ceausescu had in 1981, um, he had been a ruler for a while, but in 1981 he created an austerity program because the country was so in debt that uh, they, they were, the debts were being called in and he needed to pay off that debt. So what he did was essentially starve his people to make that money so he could pay that debt. And uh, he used the secret police to enforce it. And he also aggrandized his old image while starving those people. So you have a, a ruling party in Czechoslovakia that is working with the Soviet Union, some in some cases not necessarily you know as much as they want to but you have a populace who's um, always been a bit more likely to protest and a bit more likely to bite the hand that feeds it and maybe would have been the first domino to fall after the wall came down Romania, though, like you have Ceausescu, who was a dictator who was propped up by the Soviets, but didn't necessarily always follow Soviet policy in lockstep. So he would choose policies and directions in his country that were really for his own purposes. And the most notable of that was um, through the 80s, when Gorbachev comes to power in Russia, he rejects a lot of Gorbachev's policies. This is a decision that basically perpetuated the, the dire situation that he created in 81 with his austerity measures. Romania had the highest infant mortality rate in Europe when the Cold War ended, and much of its citizenry was forced to endure significant poverty, and this led to those major health crises and the mortality rate. The country's debt was paid off, though, but Ceausescu just did little to change the policy, so by 1989, the situation was just very, very dire. Ceausescu is re-elected, if you can call it that, for another term on the very same day, November 24th, 1989, that the communist government of Czechoslovakia resigned. So these two re revolutions, one violent, one not violent, were going on simultaneously very close to one another geographically. Just wanted to mention that as well. And it's not considered very surprising, considering that Ceausescu and the government were very 
good at making sure that no news about like the fall of the wall and what was going on in other countries would reach the uh, would reach the country. They were very very tight lipped with the media and had a very good control over it. But revolution does come to the country. The revolution itself begins in earnest on December 16th with an uprising of the Hungarian population of the city of Timisoara. The catalyst for this was the attempted deportation of Laszlo Tokas, a Hungarian pastor who had spoken against the government, especially about their denial of human rights. This then led to riots wherein protesters literally burned communist writings and it got so huge that the military could do little to stop it. Classes were violent, some people died when a group of protesters violated an imposed curfew, but then were fired upon, and within three days of the original protests, there were strikes in major factories. Again, like I said, you had a lot of student protests, and student protests can be effective, but it's sometimes the economic situation followed by the actual factory workers, the bread, the breadwinners, the people who are the movers and shakers of the industries going on strike. That becomes way more significant than angry young men in the streets. Not to discount the angry young men in the streets, but it's just it's interesting to see the pattern of you have starved us, we are working to the bone and seeing nothing for it, we are going on strike. As opposed to, I'm studying, I think this is wrong, I'm going to protest. So anyway, strikes in major factories in Ceausescu, when this was going on, actually wasn't even in the country, he was in Iran. So it was his wife and his subordinates who handled the response to it, and when he returned, he decried the protest as being influenced by foreign governments. But the turning point for this was on December 21st. This is when Ceausescu gave his final speech. It was at a staged rally wherein 100,000 people were gathered to show support for him and to cheer on his condemning of the protests and notes in, uh, and riots in, in Timosera, the, the Hungarian part of Romania. And I should point out that one of the things that Ceausescu was known for while starving all his people was the self-aggrandizement of holding rallies in support of himself, building himself lavish palaces and things like that. So it really was an exploitation of his people and, and a downright oppression of a, a, somebody who was essentially a petty dictator. So Ceausescu's giving this speech on the 21st, and it was your typical stuff. He blamed the protest on, quote, fascist agitators, because if you don't recall basic politics 101 or you're not sure, fascists and communists are the extremes of each side of the political spectrum. The fascists of your Mussolini and your Hitler are the far right the the totalitarian communist socialists of that is your far left and um very often they seem very very similar although um although they do have diametrically opposed theories in some way or another so it's just kind of like two extremes both of which are absolutely awful so the communists hate the fascists and the fascists hate the communists in fact some of the first people that the fascists threw into concentration camps in world war ii were communists so anyway so he decries fascist agitators right you know the the far the extremists the the people who were the bad actors you know um and he repeated the propaganda about the glory of the communist state that had been going around but as he's giving this speech the crowd protests and his attempt to silence them draws more protests and he starts 
getting visibly stunned by the reactions because he developed, again, this cult of personality around himself and really began to believe his own lies. So as this is happening, there's sounds of, and, and this has never actually been substantiated or confirmed, but apparently there were sounds of fireworks, bombs, guns. Something goes off on the outskirts of the rally, and this turns it into not only a full-on protest, but a riot. Uh, some of this was broadcast on state television for a little bit, and they then cut away and started playing like propaganda on the television from from the feed. But some of the images did get through, and it was the first time many Romanians actually saw any sign of civil unrest, uh, because you know they were only able to see what they could um, on state television. And even after the television had tried to cut the feed, the image of a protester waving a Romanian flag with the communist government's crest cut out of it went viral, to use a modern term anyway, and the other and other protesters began doing the same thing. Ceausescu decided to try to put down the riot using force. He used fire hoses, police beat protesters, several demonstrators were shot and killed. He and his wife decided to stay in the country, and this proved to be a fatal mistake. Workers winded up joining the protests. Ceausescu tried to impose martial law, but by this point, this was getting so huge. We're talking hundreds and thousands of people in Bucharest rioting to the head of the military uh, that, that he couldn't do it. The head of the military dies under mysterious circumstances. His replacement refuses his orders to shoot at the protesters. And then Ceausescu and his wife have to flee the city via helicopter. He ends up getting out literally minutes ahead of protesters who'd managed to storm the presidential palace that day. And by this time, by the way, the military had completely defected away from him. And in fact, the revolution begins in full force as he's leaving on the 22nd. And as he's leaving, the military defects. So the pilot who's flying the chopper with this deposed, now deposed um, premier, gets word from his superiors over the radar that, like, you know, we're not going to help you. So, um, according, this is according to the Wikipedia story, he starts flying erratically, claiming engine trouble, and forces, this forces the chopper to land, because Ceausescu's getting scared, and he tells him to land in a, in a field in the middle of nowhere. They end up taking off. The, the helicopter pilot leaves Ceausescu, his wife, and two of their security team in the middle of nowhere. And they hitch a ride with a doctor who faked car trouble, seeing who he was bringing with him. And he leaves them on the side of the road, and they eventually hitch a ride with a bicycle repairman, Nikola Petrosov. And this is one of my favorite parts of the entire story that I'm, that I'm going over here. Petrosov picks them up, tells them where to hide, and... When they get there, he locks them in a room and calls the police who take them into custody. And uh, this is uh, December 22nd, 1989. This is from the storming of the palace to their arrest. Five and a half hours. Five and a half hours to depose a government on December 22nd, 1989. Ceausescu and his wife, by the way, are put on trial on Christmas Eve. They're found guilty and immediately executed. Now, while this is going on, protesters were fighting with loyal units of the military, a new government was taking power, and whereas revolutions took place in other Eastern Bloc countries that were relatively peaceful, like I mentioned, 
Romania's was the one of the more bloody or the bloodiest one. 1,104 people died in this revolution, 942 of which happened between the time Ceausescu fled the palace and when the new government took power because there was a power struggle going on between revolutionaries, the military, those who wanted to, to take the state uh, for itself. And I go into detail in some sense about these two revolutions because they were very quick, but also because... Um, they were so contrasting, you know, part of this big sweeping change in the fall of 1989, not everything was, was as peaceful. And I suppose it's due to the culture of, say, Romania and Ceausescu and its leaders. But it's important to see how citizens rise up against oppression. Romania's revolution echoes that of 1789, even 1917, when a leader grasping for control sees it yanked away, especially after those he has chosen to insulate him, abandon him. You know, Ceausescu had little idea that the people of his country were growing to hate him, and he spent a significant amount of time convincing his followers, as well as himself, of his, his infallibility. Cults can only maintain themselves for so long. Yeah, there's always going to be true believers and people who remain loyal until the end, but many of them who follow are weak-minded enough to be shown how wrong they are. And when a leader who insulates himself within that cult is met with resistance, they choose not to listen to the opposition and double down on their power. It's one of the many reasons they don't see the revolution until it is literally several feet away from them. I vaguely remember a lot of these changes in governments, but only remembered that they seemed to take weeks or days to happen and the Eastern Bloc fell like dominoes. And I use that cliche because of its irony considering that the United States containment policy was based on a domino theory back in like the 1950s. This domino theory was if one country fell to communism, many others would. I also remember that the U.S. had a role in supporting these new governments, more than likely taking cues from, say, the Marshall Plan. The Marshall Plan was the plan in 1945-1946 to help Western Europe rebuild after the Second World War. I have to say the story of the Romanian Revolution and the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia are both amazing. In one case, Czechoslovakia it was peaceful, like completely peaceful. And I'm not a violent person by any means, and I just see that and I'm amazed at how it was. On the other hand, you have this struggle for human rights against the government that oppresses its people by denying them their rights, but also literally starving them to death. And that's monstrous, in my opinion, especially since you're doing it in your name of your own self-aggrandizing. And I look at that, and I'm like, well, you're not going to win this as much as you think you are. You know, humanity shows itself time and again to be resilient in the face of tyranny. This is why you have 1789, 1917, 1989, and a number of other important revolutionary years. Of course, the results are not always perfect or as long-lasting as we'd like, but reading the stories of these revolutions reminded of how much I value my own rights as an American citizen, especially those that are in the First Amendment. And while this is going to sound naive as hell... It gives me hope that it, for the future because we use those rights in this country and we use them to enact the change we need. We don't stand up for them being taken away by petty, self-serving demagogues. Now, in the 1950s, there was a professed fear that these rights would be taken away by communists. 
And that fear made its way into all sorts of entertainment, including comic books. What did anti-communist comics of the 1950s, especially the pre-code 1950s, look like? When I get back, I'm going to talk to Luke Giaconetti, and we're going to find out all about it. So stick around. This is Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown. An unknown which, at this very moment, still prevails and could, at any time, lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. Hi, folks. Luke Giaconetti here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you like giant monsters, or as they're called in Japan, Daikaiju? Monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman, or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at twotruefreaks.com. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. Okay, and we're back. Now, last episode, I opened the series by talking about a piece of pop culture that used the Berlin Wall as one of its plot points, and that was the John Le Carre novel, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold. This time around, um, I'm sticking with the 1950s, but I'm going to do get, kind of get along with what is the regular format of this show, which is... Uh, picking pieces of popular culture that really encapsulate or illustrate or, or define the Cold War and uh, starting from the 50s and, and moving onward. So toward the end of the series, we'll be getting to the stuff from uh, from like my childhood of the 80s, uh, your Rocky Fours, your Red Dawns and, and things like that. Uh, so the topic this time around is comic books specifically comic books that address the topic of communism. Either they were uh, fighting communists uh, via superheroes, war comics fighting communists in or the Soviets in some sort of uh, fictitious World War III scenario, or even um, com comics that fed into kind of the paranoia of the McCarthy era of a possible communist takeover. I'm not alone in this. I have my first guest on this miniseries. Uh, he was a guest on In Country with me for a couple of episodes, talking about Rambo and talking about uh, the Deer Hunter. And he, I, and he's a he's a big war comics fan and somebody who I really was the first person I thought when I thought about these because he pointed me in the direction of a couple of these comic books uh, a while back. So please welcome to the show Luke Jackinetti. How are you doing, Luke? I am doing wonderful, Tom. Thank you uh, very much for having me on. You know, after after In Country wrapped up and you announced, um, you know, that this podcast, I, uh, you know, we grew up in kind of the same era. Mm -hmm. You're uh, we're within a few years of each other. So you talking about, you know, Rocky Four and, and Red Dawn, <laughs> the one that I'll add to that, of course, 
is Godzilla 1985, which has another very strong Cold War theme to it of the, uh, you know, the, the Americans and the Soviets. So, yeah, I was right on board for this. So when you reached out to me to talk about, um, uh, you know, anti-communist uh, type of American comic books, I was all over that because uh, yeah, that, that that's something that's right in my wheelhouse. So very excited to be here. Cool. I'm glad you're here. Um, yeah, this is a this is an odd odd little era for comics because it and and most of what we'll be talking about comes in the the very sh- few short years. Well, it's probably about eight, six six seven or eight years between the end of the golden age or the the kind of when the when the bloom came off the rose post World War II for a lot of the superhero books. And before Seduction of the Innocent and the and the Senate hearings and the establishment of the uh, Comics Code Authority. So this is the probably about like 46, 47, 48 to about 53, 54. And this is an era that if you just study general comics history, it is the, the first decline of the superhero and the rise of other genres to, to take its place. Uh, the first war comics really you know, start to take hold a little bit here. Uh, romance comics become very, very big. We have, you know, your funny animals, your westerns, um, and uh, would, we would eventually get more and more science fiction toward the end of the decade, and then, of course, the rise of the Silver Age. I did a little bit of reading into this just to see how how companies were shifting left and right to try to, like, stay stay in business, like, literally stay in business as the market, like, really, really changed. Um, because my only experience with, like, this type of, of comic book is, uh, prior to, to what I've read here, was um, just stills of different, and, and, and pictures of different things that I would see, like, back when I was a kid, like, in the, uh, in, like, the Les Daniels Marvel's Marvel book. There's mm-hmm. a, he talked about how Captain America came, they brought him back in the 1950s, and we're going to talk about that. And then, um, in books like Bradford Wright's Comic Book Nation, which has a chapter in the 1950s and actually has the cover of one of the comics that we're going to talk about here, Atomic War, and talked about how, in general, superheroes, there were some superheroes that, uh, the ones that were still around, some of them decided to just go in a completely different direction and fight against crooks and bad guys um, that were a little more generic, like Superman and Batman, really didn't... I mean, not as much as some other characters took, took on, say, like, you know, Russian spies and things like that. But then, like, you, you have, um, you know, the, whatever whatever Marvel was at the time, I don't know if it was Atlas or, or what, uh, as their precursor to being Marvel Comics, would have um, Captain America. And these, and the Human Torch and Namor taking on communists. And these comics actually did not do very well. And, uh, and, and he details how uh, they were, what they tried to do was basically swap out Russians for Nazis and Koreans yeah. for Chinese. And I don't know how, what's your, I mean, before, we're going to get into, we're going to get into some of like the really, really, in my, my opinion, fun <laughs> the, the comics <laughs> of this era. But I did want to just start with the superheroes because th- this, I really have read all of three com. I think it was like three or four comics that are available on Comixology. And they were of the Captain America commie smasher, uh, you know, over over the over the head. How, do you have any experience with with this sort of stuff beyond kind of the basic? Not not really, because as you said, this is the period that's kind of defined um, in modern comics terms as kind of a dark age because of mm-hmm. the 
the decline of superheroes. I've read a lot of Golden Age comics primarily due to my love of Hawkman, of course, uh, a Golden Age character. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm a huge Silver Age fan, both on the DC and and Marvel sides of the fence, along with all the some of the independents that rose up in the uh, uh, into the the late 50s into the early 60s. So my reading of this era primarily is in the genre books. And specifically with the war books, um, as you said in your intro, I'm a big war comics fan. And a lot of these war books are now in the public domain because a lot of the publishers simply cease to exist yeah. after a while. And even the ones that were later purchased, quality is the one that jumps to mind immediately. They published uh, G.I. Combat and Blackhawk and related books to uh, to Blackhawk. A lot of those early ones are in the public domain now just because of the nature of how they were purchased eventually by uh, national periodicals or D.C. So, yeah, a lot of the – but you're right. the A lot of these stories that I have read of the superhero ones – because, again, there were indie superhero books all throughout this era. Um, you can you can find them again on – and I, I've mentioned this site on this um, on this show or not on this show, but when we've recorded before, mm-hmm. comicbookplus.com yes. is a is a really good resource for public domain comics. I'm not affiliated with them, but they have an extremely well organized database and an in browser reader, which is just wonderful. Uh, if you just want to do it on your tablet, you can also if you register, you can also download cbrs to read uh, um offline but mm-hmm. but just going through theirs you can they have it categorized and you can find superheroes and other genre books and it's it's absolutely right they, there was a switch of just you know instead of them being nazi agents they would be commie agents they were still fifth columnists or they were still you know uh enemy spies or whatever it's just that they were reporting to the kremlin instead of reporting to berlin and uh, it and and you know I, I think part of it, one of these theories I've I've read in numerous places is one of the reasons why the superheroes started to f- falter when they did was that you know uh, yeah th- these were these were something that kids were were reading and enjoying but you know soldiers became the superheroes uh, especially after the war when all the soldiers started coming home and we started entering into the post war boom that was the popular culture was, you know, being a soldier. That That's what drove Westerns to the fringe, that ultimately science fiction ended up basically driving the Western into obscurity mm-hmm. eventually. But it was soldier, soldiers, but, you know, soldiers and Westerns play well enough together, you know, but uh, but that, that was a lot of it. And, yeah, definitely the idea that we're just swapping out the bad guys, one foreign bad guy for another foreign bad guy. And then a lot of these themes, like you said, they're, they're prevalent for a short while in the 50s. And then they they start to to disappear pretty quickly with the advent of the Silver Age. Um, Marvel would actually do a bit more of this, I believe, than DC. And I'm sure that there's some DC Silver Age experts out there that are shaking their fist angrily at their MP3 uh, player right now. But um, the one that jumps to mind immediately for me is Iron Man was a was a huge anti-communist strip for. The, its early years, the uh, the Stan Lee and, and Jack Kirby, and then later Don Heck, and then later Larry Lieber, um, creative on Iron Man, dealt a lot specifically with the threat of communism. Mm-hmm. Characters like uh, the Black Widow, of course, started as a, yeah. a Soviet spy, um, and that Hawkeye was her American dupe. You know that mm-hmm. that will that did her bidding. You had characters like the Crimson Dynamo. And the Titanium Man, who were armored 
uh, foes that came from behind the the Iron Curtain that were enemies, even characters as uh, as bizarre as the Unicorn, who you wouldn't think was necessarily a Soviet villain, but he was. He was from Czechoslovakia of all places. The only Czech Czechoslov not Czech. And not Slovakian, but specifically Czechoslovakian supervillain I know is the unicorn. Uh, to the point that they, there were so many of these Soviet characters introduced that there was even a Soviet super soldiers one shot in the 90s that brought all of them together. <laughs> characters like the Red Guardian, who um, is about to hit the big time because he's going to be in the Black Widow movie. Uh, but the Red Guardian, the radioactive man. Um, like I said, the, the unicorn, there, the gremlin, uh, there's, there's dozens of these commie bad guys in the early days of Marvel before they, they kind of got away a little bit from doing that type of story and, and, uh, you know, looked more domestic for their, you know, air quotes up to the microphone, progressive storylines. So yeah, that, that, yeah. So I think, I think you're right on the money with that. They're the, 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 the timing just wasn't right for, Captain America, commie smasher, as fascinating a concept as that is to me. Yeah. As a, as a, and I, and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to put this straight out, um, you know, and, and, and you, I think you know this about me, but just for the listeners, I've, I've often described myself as a staunch anti-communist. So the idea of Captain America fighting communists appeals to me, mm-hmm. but no, they, 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 there's a reason why a lot of these books didn't succeed and that they just weren't part of the, uh, the, the national uh, dialogue at the time. Well, yeah, and because um, as we get into like you get into the seventies and eighties, um, even in the sixties, at least from the perspective that I've seen of DC in my limited reading, um, you know, I'm I'm a huge Teen Titans fan. Of course, they have this. They have the character uh, Red Star, who was a Russian Soviet superhero, who um, was essentially an ally, and later on um, would be a. Uh, would be a member of the new Titans, but, um, there were, there were some storylines there and he would all, he would often, um, tussle with or, or argue with Wally West, who was the more, you know, corn fed Midwestern, you know, I, I don't want to put the label conservative on there, but that sort of, that sort of, uh, that sort of, per, that sort of guy, like, you know, you could see him on a yeah. basketball team in Indiana somewhere or something like, you know, that, that type of, that type of kid. And, um, yeah. And I've been recently rereading, uh, reading through the uh, John Astrander uh, Suicide Squad, mm-hmm. which of the first, and I'm, I think I'm uh, like it's, I'm, I'm right before the Janus Directive uh, cr- uh, crossover, and uh, there are some some uh, Russian spy intrigue intelligence storylines um, in there um, that were very much in line with movies of that era where it's not, you know, where just basically, yeah, there's some, <laughs> there's some commie bastards in that, in those stories, but it's almost the same. It's almost that everybody's a bastard in that comic. Right. <laughs> so there's, there's like crooked people, there's like crooked people everywhere. And um, it was, those are a real treat too. If, if anybody listening uh, wants a really, really just really good comic book from the eighties, I recommend this, those suicide squad books. Mm. Um, but yeah, so, so going back and reading this, because, because my context for my context for the 1950s and the red scare of the 1950s, uh, and is, and I, and I'll get a little, little bit more to the nonfiction side of this in the next episode is, um, the cold war politics, a class I took in college, where we looked at a lot of just what McCarthyism was, you know, and how that fed off of of this kind of 
Red Scare that that had that had its roots in another Red Scare of the twenties as well. Something that it doesn't get missed in history class, but just kind of gets might get skipped over or, or get glossed over or mentioned was that you know in the post World War One, especially with the rise of um, Lenin and then after Lenin's death, the rise of Stalin in the Soviet Union, there really was a huge anti-communist scare in this country. Um, uh, but we didn't have comic books back in the 1920s the way we did with the way we did in the 50s. Um, so I could totally see, like you're right, they were they were trying to they were trying to keep the superheroes relevant. They were trying to drum up something because they were fading. And was it Julius Schwartz who had the thing about how the comic book, or is it like? Mort Weisinger, who had the thing that the comic book audience, especially back then, would turn over every five years. I, th- like- I think that was – I want to say that was Julie Schwartz, and that was one of the reasons that led to the the, re- the Silver Age revamps mm-hmm. of Flash and Green Lantern and Hawkman and Adam yeah. was that they had fig- he had figured that, well, all the folks that were reading these back in the 40s, they've all aged out of comics anyway. Yeah. And and, and and yeah, and you talk about being bringing the superheroes to be relevant. How did they make them relevant? They 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 went and avoided the political aspect, which you know again, which I, I say political aspect in air quotes up to the microphone. Yeah. And and went science fiction, went straight sci-fi. All of those revamps that were successful took uh, you know characters that you know fought fifth columnists mm-hmm. and made them into science fiction characters. Yeah. And they went, so that, yeah. yeah. And they went sci-fi in, in the space age way of science fiction, where there was a um, a very positive aspect to at least to a number of them. Or there was there was something in that sort of uh, um, you know I could see characters like Green Lantern and Flash and the Atom and, and, and who were revamped um, fitting into the whole uh, Tomorrowland ish sort of aesthetic. Mm-hmm. As oh, opposed right. yeah. to, there's some science fiction involved in in like World War Three and Atomic War, but it's really destructive, and it's right. pre- preying on the fears that people had, and the people were very, very like, I mean, very afraid of the bomb in the 1950s to a level that maybe the early 1980s matches, uh, just or or comes close to. But there was, you know, um, so this this constant fear of nuclear war and you know, and civil defense drills and things. So, so we had this this enemy in communism, and it was the and it was pr- represented by the Soviet Union. But you're you're fighting and you're fighting an ideology that at the moment is not directly aggressive on the battlefield with you. It's because mm-hmm. that the and that's one of the problems that we're having with the Cold War that. Um, you know, with whereas you had Nazis and you had the Japanese in World War II, um, and, a, and a comic audience that could see footage of Pearl Harbor and could see D-Day, could see, you know, the Battle of Britain, and like you know, th- there was a literal war going on. So you had and you had an enemy, and you had an enemy that was, for for simplicity's sake, like just flat out evil. You know, it, it's it's um you know you have a you have a straight up villain in Adolf Hitler and and you know and and, and Tojo and Hirohito and like all the characters we would see, it it doesn't it, in some cases it could be one for one in in the way you could portray it, but um, the problem was that you don't you don't have a battle or, or frame of reference for a battle to draw off of. You're doing a lot of um, 
what would become actually pretty popular, like a lot of spy stuff. You know, yeah. like James Bond would come around about, you know, the James Bond movies would start in the early 1960s. And, and you'd have spy comics and things like that that would become a lot more popular and kind of take what – kind of actually do what they were trying to do here but actually be slightly successful. But like I said, you have you have a couple of issues of Captain America and Bucky, and it's and it's them running around and, and going after people who were communist spies or communist saboteurs. Um some of the anti-Russian stuff is can be is pretty interesting. There's like, you know, I think there's a mad scientist or two. The stuff where they're fighting against either the Chinese or the North Koreans, it's really, really cringy, especially since they use the same yellow skin caricature, very racist caricature that they would use for the Japanese. So you're looking at this and you're if you if you download those comics and Marvel put them up on Comixology in their entirety, save for ads. You just have to know that they are very much of their time. Right. You know, and, yeah. And, 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 yeah. <laughs> and, and the same, the same has to be said of the straight war comics from this era, because mm-hmm. by the time you get into the mid fifties, uh, this, this, a lot of people may not necessarily realize this. I know I didn't realize this until I started really getting into reading a lot of these older war comics, because we think of war comics in this country, we think primarily they're set in World War II. Yeah, like Sergeant that Rock. That is, you know, Sergeant Rock, Sergeant Fury, the Haunted Tank, the uh, Unknown Soldier. These are all World War II era. And as you said, World War II, for the most part, had some clearly defined roles mm-hmm. for what nations did what. It be the Again, coming off of the, the pop culture explosion of World War II after the war in this country, uh, we, you know, every kid knew the basics and, and knew what side everybody was on. Um, but then you go into the 50s and you start seeing, uh, first off, every publisher has at least a couple of war comics in their in their publishing lineup. Mm-hmm. As you said, they, they all had romance comics, they all had westerns and they all had war books. Even Harvey, purveyor of Richie Rich, <laughs> the richest boy in the world had a grisly selection of pre-war, pre-code war books for your perusal at the newsstand. But um, but they 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 shifted for to being set in Korea. And they're the same type of stories. They're, you know, anthologies with three or four, uh, eight to eight to ten page stories in a in a comic. They were little morality tales or little tales of bravery. But they were they they depicted the Koreans and not in a particularly good light. As you said, it was the standard type of uh, method at the time for predicting Asians uh, with the the yellow uh, skin tone and the the pigged in English mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, calling everybody a dog. That that That's the common insult of uh, if, if all Nazis in comic book call people swine. Yeah. Then communists call them dog. I, yeah. I, I don't know why that is. That's just the way it is. So. <laughs> I confess to not knowing an enormous amount about Korea, the Korean War, but I will say that like there's an ambiguity in Vietnam, having read having read quite right. a bit of Vietnam comics over the years. Um, there's you know there there are obviously two sides to it, but there's a you know uh, as you read into Vietnam, there's you know the north and the, the south the, the southern government that we were helping to support was not um, squeaky clean in its 
in its politics and its dealings and its treatment of its people. Um, you know, and there's, there's a lot of, and which, which fuels the, which, which helps fuels the anti-war movement. And there's just, there's a lot of gray areas to what is going on, especially considering whether or not we could actually win the war. And I get sometimes some of the same feeling from the Korean war, especially since, um, it's kind of a stalled out ongoing conflict. Uh, it was, you know, we, we, the Reader's Digest version is we pushed in, we came in with, you know, and we were essentially representing like the UN and, um, or, or we were working in tandem with the UN and, and we were, we were pushing back into North Korea and got up into near China, but then basically were beaten back and stopped like right at the 38th parallel. And that's where everything kind of stayed. You know, you have a demilitarized zone and, and then that's it. You know, you right. um, you have South Korea now is a bustling, really an economic power in Asia. North Korea is uh, one of the more mysterious countries on the planet. It, it is very like we see what comes out yeah. of it, and and um, just the, this very stark contrast between the two. But like even when fighting, and I was reading the in, in Comic Book Nation, the Bradford Wright book says that. Um, you know, they did those stories of the of the hero soldier and and the you know and the Korean uh, enemy didn't always translate well because they didn't always necessarily match up very well with what was in the headlines at the time. Right. Um, and if you had um, Captain America fighting the Red Skull or Nazis, and you had you know the the Human Torch and, and all these fighting these these villains, if it was prior to forty four forty five, they were a good rallying cry. They were a good moral support type of thing. They were like, you know, we can do this. We can win. <laughs> Even if you're only putting Superman or Batman on a cover and being like, you know, buy war bonds, you know, right. that really worked. And then once things actually got going post D-Day and, um, you know, into the Battle of the Bulge and, and, and post that when um, we, re we really just kind of we hit the tipping point. We were just like, you know, we were there. <laughs> As, as the Soviets just kind of bulldozed their way across Eastern Europe, um, it was almost like there was a sense of a victory lap as well. So, um, yeah, but yeah, it's just reading. They were they were fun to read, uh, but I will say that because I've read a couple of Golden Age Cap comics, those are better. The classic yeah. Simon and Kirby uh, Kirby comics, but this this communist scare. <laughs> came into other genres, even a, a romance genre. And at the top of the show, the chapter of Comic Book Nation start, I read this, the chapter of Comic Book Nation starts off with a summary of a story from a romance comic in the early 1950s. And it's basically this girl being taken to, uh, going on a date with this, this cool guy. It was a, um, it was in a comic book called Daring Confessions. And the daring confession was this guy was a, was a communist. He took her to a <laughs> communist cell and they brainwashed her. And it was like, it, it's right out of one of those, like, you know, um, like dramatizations you'd see, like an educational film, like, you know, here's my boyfriend. No, daddy, I'm a communist now. You know, oh my God. <laughs> that sort of thing. So, and, and, you know, you, you, you don't, you know, you sometimes, and I don't mean to make generalizations, but I think sometimes as modern male readers, mm. we overlook some of the absolute bat guano crazy <laughs> stuff that went down in romance comics back in the golden age and even into the 50s and 60s. 
Oh, that gosh. I've got to look that up. I mean, you know, there was a movie called I Married a Communist, you know, I, I it might be from the same. I, yeah. Yeah. I have to see if I can. Um, I've, I've got a. I've got a couple of random videos tagged on YouTube, so I have to see what I can what I can find or what I can watch in the next few months. Because there's that, there's the Red Menace, there's there's all these other crazy, crazy movies, and um, yeah. I, I can just see that that romance comic. It's like you know, it's True Confessions. It's like I dated, I know, I married a gambler. Yeah. My boyfriend's a communist. It's like these two are maybe not equal, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and those and those those comics were very much about upholding, you know, very uh, at the time what were considered traditional values. So, like, there's right. so next to the I dated a communist, it was the um, you know uh, he doesn't want to date me anymore because I have a job, <laughs> you know, like right. like ones you know just like you know at the end like she the win at the end is the fact that she quits her career to stay at home for him or something you know so of like course. these are yes. the values that were you know and this is again this is even post comics code during the comics code era when romance comics were still very running very strong um these this is what the message that you essentially got you know um but yeah this it's just they're ridiculous but i think the the ones that that i really wanted to focus on um there were two publishers uh, th these are all on comic book plus uh and and i had downloaded them i'm flipping through my kindle here to find them you have uh you have two that were put out by uh Ace Publications. One is called Atomic War. The other one is called World War Three. Um, and there's only a couple of issues. That at least I don't know how, how many issues there actually were published. There were only a few episode issues published of of each. And both of them are um, of a similar scenario. You have um, in World War Three's first issue uh, has a picture of men running one with his hair on fire from an exploding like the mushroom cloud is coming out of the breaking dome of the u.s capitol mm -hmm. and it says the war that will never happen if america remains strong and alert and uh it's this whole thing of how um uh they have a saboteur and and uh you know they pull the wool over eyes and they just launch an attack and they they like bomb New York right beyond Ebbets Field, and it's just like, you know, out of nowhere, this comes. And then Atomic War starts off uh, in a very, very similar vein. Only a strong America can prevent Atomic War. And uh, the first issue shows the, the, the bomb going off, the mushroom cloud, behind... Um, what would be downtown Manhattan because we have the Chrysler Building and the uh, and the Empire State Building and etc. Um, in, in the foreground, so I think it's it's heading down there. Um, and uh, this is this one has the premise, and this was a this was a very very typical trope for the time of a sneak attack. You mm -hmm. know the idea that um, somehow the communists lull us into peace. And what happens there is that um, they have agents throughout the country. We don't necessarily, sometimes in some of them we disarm, um, and in others we simply just kind of, you know, help them out, or there, there's a sense of just kind of letting our guard down. And in this one, um, they 
they have this one guy in like in, in a military air traffic control room and he is basically manipulating the board so that the so that nobody's picking up that there are enemy planes with atomic bombs coming in and it's too late they start bombing new york they start bombing other cities and the rest of the comic is okay it's this like really horrific like several page oh, yeah. sequence of just yeah. people dying in and and cities like panel after panel of of um of like you know things on fire and uh you know and the communists win and then like we get like you know the in the early stages of the war a couple of planes that that you know were they were able to spare because you know I don't know that, that area wasn't hit go up and they fight them they dogfight and they actually win and and eventually we get we get basically what becomes a basic war comic um where they're you know we progressively get to the point where either we're starting to turn the tide or we're we're able to hit them head on as opposed to the first couple of stories where either it's um you know we we've we got managed to get a couple of planes in the air and we're gonna we're gonna take them down as best as we can or the one story in this first book where it's like a couple of guys behind enemy lines and they're trying to get back to friendly territory and fighting their way back right. that sort of you know grit story that you know gung-ho grit story but yeah, this this yeah, the, the sequence of destruction is is unbelievable. Right. You know, we we throw around the term disaster porn. Uh-huh. And and to me, disaster porn goes back even earlier than a lot of people I think want to apply it because to me disaster porn always makes me think of Irwin Allen and the other disaster movies from the 70s disaster movie cycle. Yeah. This puts that stuff to shame. I mean, this is this I mean, pre-code war books as a general rule, the best word I can use to describe them is grisly. Uh-huh. You know, men being gunned down, being burned with flamethrowers, uh, being blown to bits with grenades. This was common fare. This is a this this is a bridge almost too far of how the the level of especially for a former New Yorker like myself yeah. to watch in grave detail as not just is you know parts of Manhattan destroyed. But then, you know, the the um, as they drop it down and, and the and, and so the the inrush of the water creates a tidal wave that floods out lower Manhattan. And they're described as the shelters became pools of death where thousands drowned. Yeah. And and, you know, they show the civil aid workers running up out of the shelters to help and uh, the oxygen burning in their lungs and dying. Yeah. It's like it, it, this is like I said, this, this is insane. Yeah. The, and the thing that I love about both of these comics. So these are both put out by Ace. Mm-hmm. OK. World War Three. Number one was released in March of 1952. OK. Yeah. Then the second issue of World War Three doesn't come out until May of 1953. So, you know, over a year later in the interim they released all four issues of Atomic War. So uh, there's speculation that maybe the title World War III was not garish enough to capture <laughs> the imaginations. We better put it in even bigger letters on Atomic War because the, the, the stories, I just said, are essentially the same. They both take place in the spring of 1960. They mm-hmm. both involve a sneak attack. They both have a reference to the Brooklyn Dodgers. Which is really funny because, of course, the Brooklyn Dodgers were no longer in Brooklyn in 1960. Yeah. <laughs> they had since moved out to Los Angeles. Uh, but the, the thing I also love about both of these is so in exploitation film, 
there is something, a concept called the square up. And the square up is borrowed from the carnival back in the Carney freak show days. Okay. okay. So back in the, in the old school freak show, you might, they might have a, a, what they call a, um, <clears throat> it might be an actual corpse. It more than likely was a rubber corpse in, in, is stuck in a glass, supposedly in formaldehyde uh-huh. of, oh, this is, this is the brain of a marijuana user, you know, or some other <laughs> lurid thing like that. And the, the square up is how they'd get away with doing these exploitative things. What they, they, they present it as we are presenting this for educational value for the public good. And that, like I said, if you watch the really classic exploitation films, uh, Reefer Madness is a good one. Marijuana. There's a yeah. few others. They all have this square up, right? Yeah. And in World War III, on the first page, let the reason for publishing this shocking account of World War III be completely clear. We want only to awaken America and the world to grim facts. The one way to prevent this mass destruction of humanity is to prepare now. Only a super strong and fully enlightened America can stop this onrushing horror of the future. So there's the square up. It's like, no, no, we're not, we're not a cheap exploitative comic showing you, uh, thousands and thousands of Americans being burned to death and flooded and drowned in an atomic war. This is educational. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the brazen, the sheer bald face brazenness of this is charming to me. <laughs> Not even, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, kids, yeah, this is okay, yeah. <laughs> well, that, that's, what, that's what gets me, too, because then it just becomes really a straight-up war comic to the point where this, of course, uh, this, of course, did crack me up. The weaponry they come up with, these, like, atomic-powered yep. weapons, where uh, yep. when you first introduced, this, I, introduced me to these comics, this is what you're describing, like, atomic-powered bazookas, which are... I don't like which I don't think this is actually technologically possible. The the amount no. of energy expanded by a, an atomic explosion is is not good for a short range weapon, even or even a mid range one like a like a rocket launcher, bazooka type of thing. Yeah. But they're mm-hmm. they're firing like, you know, it's 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 almost like ray guns, but all but we put the power of the atom bomb into like, you know, a a an M fourteen or something or just something crazy like that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I made I made a list. We had in just in World War Three, we had atomic rockets, an atomic bazooka. This one I love: the atomic anti-personnel mine. Now, you know, let me let me walk. Let me let me speak on this for a second, okay? Right. Now, the the human body is not meant to absorb a concussive force over a certain amount of, of force, right? Yeah. That, that is when a mine blows up, let's say you step on a Claymore mine or any type of landmine, and it explodes. It is not the explosion that kill you, kills you. It is the pressure wave of concussive force that kills yeah. you. Okay? The, the human body has not been sufficiently evolved since the creation of the landmine to be resistant to this, why would you need to atomic power a landmine? I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't mean to be crass, but you understand what I'm saying yeah. here. What, what does that possibly help? <laughs> I don't even understand the the, the reasoning. Um, 
we we get a actually I think this is kind of funny because we actually get in World War Three um, we get an ICBM. Mm-hmm. It's it's called an atomic missile, but that's an intercontinental ballistic, ballistic missile. Yeah, and it's like that's that is fascinating and terrifying that for that it's fascinating that they predicted the use of an intercontinental ballistic missile in 1952 Mm -hmm. it's also terrifying that we actually created this science fiction weapon and pointed it at someone yeah and that though someone pointed them right back at us so you know it's (laughs) i'd have to i'd actually have to go and do some research as to whether or not the possibility of a of this type of missile was uh, something that was already being speculated with at the time because the 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 concept of the rocket was already around. You know, right. the, I mean, we didn't know we we essentially didn't know how they worked. Um, you know, but but you see, you know, old science fiction of of this era of the you know the space rocket, the spaceship. So the marrying the two, which is essentially what we did. Um, is is not out of the ordinary um but yeah i don't don't know where i would where i would actually look if if the writers of this were reading like old scientific magazines or something Mm -hmm. um if it made its way into stuff like life perhaps i you know i i or or some of the other lifestyle magazines of the time but you're right it's it is it is just like um, other elements of science fiction which this does technically fall under or at least skirt the line of, of science fiction because it's a futuristic war it's just a very near future but they are using you know they are literally taking science and technology and making fiction out of it so it technically is right um you know it's it's one of those things where sci-fi is kind of predicting some of the things you know to come um <laughs> so which you know, always makes it be a little nervous when I see artificial intelligence um you know, being touted as this new thing, and my in-laws are arguing with uh, the GPS or with Alexa, and I'm like, <laughs> you know, how many times have I seen the Terminator? This is how this starts. Yeah, this um, is how this all starts. Sorry, all starts the, the other thing that that really struck me about rereading these, and and I had and we I th- we had talked about this previously. Mm-hmm. The 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 you know uh, the famous Einstein quote. He says, "I do not know with what what weapons World War Three will be fought, but World the Fourth shall be fought with sticks and stones." Yeah. The the uh, the envision the vision here is that World War Three would simply be a bigger, badder version of World War Two. Yeah. Uh, like I said we we talked about that there was obviously a Pearl Harbor type of sneak attack here. Um, I do love that there's there that not only we see little bits and pieces here where not only is the United States attacked, but the United Kingdom and Germany, uh, specifically West That's Berlin, yeah. one issue of atomic. I, and, and it's very specifically West Berlin. I'm not sure how you could drop a nuke on West Berlin <laughs> and not impact East Berlin. Berlin Again, yeah. the wall was big. It wasn't that big. The wall know? wasn't even up at this point. <laughs> <laughs> right, I was gonna say, yeah, but uh, but the, the but just the, the idea that it would be a lot like World War Two, yeah, just with with uh, with worse weapons. There is a story in Atomic War Number Two, the lead story, which is um, I've got it. It's called Operation Vengeance. It's basically the Doolittle raid, mm-hmm. where you know they the 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 Soviets destroy New York. They destroyed, they destroyed New York because it's a population center. 
They destroy Detroit because it's a manufacturing center, and they destroy Chicago because it is a uh, they call it the butcher to the world. So all the food yeah. that comes out that came out of Chicago, all the slaughterhouses. So in retaliation, we drop bombs on two Sid, two cities that I am not familiar with in in the Soviet Union, and then Moscow. Well, yeah, of course. So it's yeah, of, of course, but it's like it's it's but this is again this being 1953. There is no sense of awareness about any of this. This is presented as what you would do. There is a running theme through these of when are we going to strike back? It's like we dropped an atomic bomb on Moscow. Doesn't that count as striking back? Yeah. You know, there, there, is, a, there, there is no awareness here that this this was being clearly sold to uh, uh, to to impressionable, um, you know, kids. And I'm sure shaped, uh, you know, years of. Uh, uh, of uh, policy and position papers that got written at schools, but uh, it's it's the these these are as I said the, even even for the era of war comics these just go beyond the pale with the this the the complete you know uh, lack of restraint in how they are presented and and again and to put that square up in the front to say no they, we're doing this for educational purposes the, these are these are just astounding. I would love to get actual physical copies of these, but apparently they're pretty hard to come by. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Um, and it's just this this whole um, yeah again the, the the frequency of the use of the of the bomb and these you know the and the fact that it would not be um, you know that you're presenting this fantasy to uh, you know to these kids in the way that, you know, they're constantly, you know, we're constantly using this bomb. Whereas in reality, it was very much the opposite. They became this, you know, the, the, it eventually became the mutually assured destruction principle. Right. You know, the idea that, that, that we're never going to drop the bomb on each other because we'd, it was a zero sum game. We'd wipe each other off the map and, and, you know, nobody wins. Um, And, And even, even to this day, you know, our current, as we stand recording this, our current policy is one of deterrence. Mm-hmm. The idea that you keep a nuclear arms stockpile at a certain level relative to the other nuclear powers as a deterrent. You don't want to ever fire them. Yeah. You know, but you have to be, but that, but at the same time, you balance that with the, again, on the policy is that, the 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 threat that you could fire them has to still be seen as real. Yeah. It's this extremely delicate balancing act that you know is is our nuclear policy in 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 this country. And it's it again, it's it's something that we being born when we were born have always it's always been part of our life. Mm-hmm. But for here in the early fifties, you know, not even a decade removed from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it was the I mean. It was the Wild West. You know, you didn't know what, you know, what this was going to mean. We, we, you know, as a as a big giant Japanese giant monster fan, we this is kind of stuff we talk about all the time for the Japanese people. They didn't know that we weren't going to do it again. And we didn't know again that the Russians didn't have the ability to do this to us. It's the idea that especially in the, the post-war boom, the you look at the science fiction, you look at all the pop culture, all the biggest threat. Was and, and the the biggest existential dread was some unknown other coming and stopping all the stuff that we had going on, whether that was an alien invasion, whether it was a communist invasion. Yeah. The idea of the other coming from the outside and destroying 
this this boom that we had created that that America had reaped the benefits of the the when they entered into World War II, how World War II played out and where it played out. That so that this that was a very real and legitimate fear. And we look back on it now and it seems, you know, it's it's quaint and it's paranoid. But, you know, I mean, this this uh, when when you were only getting your your info from whatever local paper you got and whatever gossip that you heard, mm-hmm. you know, that you didn't know necessarily what what we now know. When in hindsight, we don't have didn't have that benefit. This was a real and legitimate fear. And and it's you know we uh, I I don't want I don't want to put too fine a point on it but you know we all lived through nine eleven we remember yeah. the days after that when we didn't know and there was an uncertainty that after we had been struck this terrible blow out of nowhere that this uncertainty that they could do it again at any time and then policies change and you know things become we we become used to certain. Uh, aspects of of the changed world, and eventually things become normalized, and we understand the threat better, and we work to to deter it. But you know they're, they're in a similar position. The the, the contemporaries of, of these books in 1952 and 1953. Yeah, because the threat of because um, the, the Rosenbergs were executed in 1953, so they were convicted in 1951, and and that's a because um, the 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 uh, I think the you the Russian atomic bomb test was in the late 40s. I want to see 47 or 49 rings a bell. And uh, that was frightening to a lot of people because it was, you know, very much like a, where did they get this from? Did they develop on, on their own? Did somebody steal it from us? And then um, the, the fact that the Rosenbergs were convicted of spying on behalf of the Soviet Union uh, was a touchstone moment for our culture because it was the sort of there are spies among us type mm-hmm. of type of scenario. And, you know, we see that again through, through and I'll do an episode later on about spy things, spy movies and things like that. Um, and I've done a little bit already, uh, you know, and, and, and in the, in our contemporary period or modern period right now, um, we still have that, but there is a, there is a legitimate fear. And there has been for a while, especially over the last like 30 or 40 years of nuclear pro- proliferation, um, not to the Soviet Union or former Soviet states, but to like Al Qaeda and like other organizations or countries that we as a government don't necessarily trust in the way that we had this odd sense of trust with the Soviets. You know, mm-hmm. there, there was this sort of uh, like I, I think the rogue nation or rogue state is the phrase that that gets thrown around about this a lot. So, so right. and and then nine eleven did you know I, I'm sure that the, that that our intelligence community still has nuclear proliferation um, intelligence operations and things like that and stopping those those sorts of things. But nine eleven did change a lot of that because the for what they were able to do, they didn't need an atomic bomb. You know, they didn't need to launch right. a missile. They didn't need to detonate a you know a suitcase in the middle of in, in the middle of downtown Manhattan. Um, so that was you know so you're right it, and 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 things changed pretty quickly. Policies changed um, and. Certain things got normalized, you know, and 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 it it happened back, you know, back then as well. Um, 
but it's also cycle there you know as we get into the 60s things do cycle and the 70s things cycle into a backlash against these things as well you know there there a lot, a lot you know there's a lot of history and policy and economics everything does tend to be cyclical or go back and forth so mm-hmm. the energy and the fear and the and the paranoia generated by by works like this and films and and things um it, it's can't be sustained there does come a breaking point we even see that toward the end of the 50s with the um the uh the visit of nikita khrushchev to um the united states which is a very very friendly thing up until the point where they shoot down gary powers but you know um it's and, and tensions ratchet back up but you know there's there's cooling and and and, and things heating up um and we get to, and, and it's a really good segue into Is This Tomorrow, which is this comic book that was put out. It was a one-shot, as we would say in, in comic parlance, um, put out by the um, the, catech, the catechetical, the catechism people, the like a Catholic organization, catechetical guild. I think I got it. Um, yeah. Educational Society from St. Paul, Minnesota. And, and the guy who founded it, whose name escapes me, and I don't know where I put it in my notes, also founded like Catholicism Today or Catholic Digest or something like, you know, had had founded, was was somebody who founded like publications for Catholics back in like the 30s and 40s. And, and a lot of the Catechetical Guild's comics were basically like your run-of-the-mill Bible stories comics, you know. Right, heroes yep. of the Bible and stuff, and you can find those. This one, the cover is of people fighting, like what looks like Soviet agents or communist agents, fighting a, a good old and killing good old Americans, while their their fl- the American flag goes down in flames behind them. Is this tomorrow, America under communism? And and that you know that what would you call it the square? Uh, the square up, the yeah. square up is there on the very first page to make you think. Is this tomorrow? Yeah. Is published for one purpose to make you think, to make to uh, make you uh, more alert to the menace of communism. Today, there are approximately eighty-five thousand official members of the Communist Party in the United States. And it's a classic McCarthyist tactic. Yeah, um, I mean this. Yeah, the the putting the numbers out there. Yeah, and on that and on that cover. Um, you mean, who are the communists attacking? Uh, they're one is slugging an African American guy. Mm-hmm. One is choking a woman and one has like a hammerlock on a priest. So yes. it, these, these guys are, they, they ain't, they ain't messing around. They're going right for the jugular. And I think the African American man is supposed to be a soldier. Yes. He certainly wearing, appears to be wearing fatigues. Yeah. Fatigues. And, in the bottom right-hand corner, there's this sort of cloaked figures and things. So I don't know if that's supposed to be like you know a menace or whatever. But it's yeah, it's it's um, you know <laughs> these are your countrymen, and this is all the things that represent us, or the things that we try to protect, or the people who try to protect us. And and uh, it's like you know these people are working day and night, laying the groundwork to overthrow your government. You know. <laughs> yeah, I I do. Yeah, the the last two bits of the square up, I love actually. The average American is prone to say it can't happen here. Millions of people in other countries used to say the same thing. Today they are dead or living in communist slavery. It must not happen here. And what's what's really strange and 
this is just one of these odd things that you come across kind of in this just digital world we live in. The, if you go to Comic Book Plus and look up Is It Tomorrow, mm-hmm. one of the comments is from a user named Bettino, 1995. And you can tell from his comment that English would not be this this individual's native tongue okay. just from their grammar. But the this this individual says, hello, I've read this comic with, with great pleasure and interest about the communist world. I lived in such a country until I was 13 where this kind of regime ruled the country for 45 years from 1945 until 1989 with all these oppressive methods described in your comic book. Then he goes on to say that um, uh, the, he, he talks about, you know, that he has some he's, – he's Romanian. He talks about okay. he has some Romanian comics he'd like to upload. But I just thought that was a fascinating little comment from this Romanian who lived in a – under a communist government and says, yeah, they did all this stuff. Just just a little thing like that when I was reading this in, in, prep, in preparation for this show, that just stood out to me, you know. Because it, it is, I mean, again, it's, it is clearly propaganda. There's no question about this. Mm-hmm. I wish that I had, I wish I had known about this because I, I had heard about this prior to you mentioning it to me, but I, this, uh, it was a couple of years ago. My oldest had done a project about propaganda in school and I wish I could have given her this to read, mm. you know, because yeah. it's, it's not written in a particularly difficult style. The subject matter is very difficult, but the the actual uh, prose is fairly easy to read. I think she would have been able to to really let it sink in about what this is, and the idea of propaganda, you know, being used um, by America. Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, if 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 a atomic war and World War Three were just kind of you know, like I said, just insane, th- this one th- this is really something. Like I said, it, it is clearly propaganda. But the thing that really struck me about this is, you know, again, they, they talk about that these are actual methods used in different countries that have fallen to communism. What I, what I really liked about this is there's a whole section right in the middle of this where they've started stepping up how they're, you know, their, their plan to take over. And it's not this fantastical plan of dropping atomic bombs on New York and Detroit and Chicago. It's about them controlling certain or influencing certain people and controlling certain areas and pitting people against each other. But there's like I said, there's a section where we see that they the government then controls the news media, which is a modern fear of we would now we'd say it would be leftism or socialism, but it's a modern concept. Then they seize all the weapons. Modern concept. The state alone is important. Modern concept. The schools, the the teachers are teaching communism, which is, again, say socialism. Yeah. Modern concept. All these things are the same things that we hear from far right, but also even moderate right, and, you know, anti-communist, anti-socialist today in, in, you know, as we're recording this in, in 2020. So that that really struck me because it's the same stuff that that we've been preaching about because it's the same tactics. So again, and 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 again, this is now the context here is this was an anti-communist pamphlet. The same exact stuff 
are the 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 left accuses the right of doing, yeah. accuses fascists of doing. So it's it's this the, you know it, it, there's there's a reason why the the these are the things addressed in this propaganda book. It's because again understand it's propaganda, but this there's some, a lot of basis in fact here, and so this, this to me reading this. It got me angry. It got me upset. It's highly recommended. I, I, yeah. I'm just, I mean, you know, what, one of the things you and I have talked about offline is that po- politically we're very different, yeah. but we get along very well. Part of that's because of the Mets. Yes. You know, it's, it's one of those universal suffering things that we all understand. <laughs> but I, I'd like to think that we're both in our uh, – regardless of our politics, both staunt patriots and mm-hmm. this kind of stuff – Again, whatever context you read it in, it this should this does a very good job of being propaganda and speaking to me as a patriot. Yeah, because it, it, um, and, and it's funny because I was reading something um, the other day that's unrelated to this, but it took place in World War II, and it was about the invasion of uh, part of part of the book was about the invasion of the Netherlands during the Second World War and the the idea that you know the Nazis would install teachers into the schools and those things like you know like you said the 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 left accuses the right of doing this the name of fascism and the right accuses the left of doing this in the name of communism it's because they're because the type of the type of communism that we have seen is this sort of totalitarian state it's you know it's it's there are complete opposite ends of the political spectrum yet they're so similar it's it's right ironic but you're right it's because because what it is is if you take it at its core and you take the you take the right or left ideology out of it you have an outside um, a philosophy that is diametrically opposed to ours, as as you know, as a as a democracy founded on the on, on certain principles of freedoms, undermining those freedoms and slowly stripping away the rights that we hold very very dear. So the right to freedom of speech and a free press, the right to um, you know, I, I'm not a gun person, but it, I can see where if you start having people's weapons taken away in a book like this, it's going to get people riled up because it is, you know, it's in the it's in the Bill of Rights. So, 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 in the, on a very very basic level, you know, like here are these these rights in the Constitution where I'm like, you know, these are, you know, we can debate their nature, we can debate how far they can go. Um, and we can debate how they need, you know, and how they change with the times, because that's the healthy part of democracy. But if you take them away entirely, um, you know, that's that's a pers- that's a very very real threat to a lot of people, and it's something where I can see, like, you know, um, where where I think, you know, both pe- people on both sides of the ideological spectrum would would be offended if, like, you know, if, if somebody came in and. And the government took over the media or something. You know, it's just it's not <laughs> it's it's not kosher as far as no, it's as, not as, it's, as, it's... Our, as our republic is concerned. And that's yeah. You know, so you're right. This is almost it's it's ridiculous, but it's almost scary in a way. And I can right. see how this I is mean, a very very scary yeah. comic book. Right, and, and it's it's like I said, it, it's so what they do is so contrarian mm-hmm. to everything. Again, wherever you fall, the things that as Americans we all co- have as commonality. Um, the the one thing I, I one thing I thought that was very subtle about this, all the the communists, their names are Smith, Brown, Jones. They all have common American names. Mm-hmm. They're not, you know, they don't have. Russian names, you know, they're the idea that communism is, you know, it can be the guy living next door to you 
is was was again part and parcel with the uh, the Red Scare paranoia after the war. This again because you said it was it was this faceless enemy that could be anywhere because it was an ideology more than in anything else. Yeah. The uh, yeah and the I mean and and this this book doesn't in its own way it doesn't pull punches. I mean we see uh, the president and the vice president both killed in a uh, in a with a grenade attack at a parade, which is. Uh, that that's that's a that that one's a that one's a bit much. The one that takes the cake to me is when they they get all the joint chiefs to a meeting and then gun them down. And then when they're arguing in Congress, they send armed men out to hold the congressmen at gunpoint. Yeah. And and it's like, again, seems seems ridiculous. But, you know, more insane things happened in in in, in communist regimes. <laughs> but although. Palpatine was more subtle. <laughs> yes, yes, over. he was. Absolutely. <laughs> the The other thing I, I do think is interesting here is that they're specifically getting orders from Moscow. Yes. So not to, so that that's a little bit different ver, of how we viewed communism then versus uh, let, again, let's say how we view socialism today. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, uh, taking again. Just just intellectually saying socialism as a threat, whether you you know whether whatever whatever merit that may have here, the 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 communist threat was this external threat that was coming in, as we've discussed on this, whereas now it's more of an ideological threat. It's this it's what I'd call the argument of a fifth columnist versus an idealist. You know, the the uh, the uh, now it's not so much. Oh, we're we're agents of a foreign government. It says we really think this will work and you guys better do what we say. Yeah. You know, so that's a that that that's that's something that 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 is a different context for the age. But again, it, it coming in 1947, that was the very real uh, thing. The idea of the the outside, uh, uh, as as we've talked about, you know, at length there, the the outside force coming in. The the other one thing that really I really liked about this was on the the last page. So it's the back cover. Fight communism with the Ten Commandments of Citizenship. And this, again, getting back to the uh, uh, the, the Cathetical Guild yeah, Education yeah. Society, so the Ten Commandments. Yeah. But um, there's – I don't know that there's anything on this list that would offend anyone who, who is a uh, an American. Know your government. I think that's fair. Yeah. Know the issues before it. Okay. okay. Keep up on foreign problems. All right. Okay. Be this one. Be tolerant of other races, religions, and nationalities. Okay. Practice your own religion. Okay. Again, that that yeah. that's again. It, it's from a Catholic organization, so they're going to assume that you're you know have you're some religion. You're. <laughs> That you're, they're assuming you're not a godless heathen. Yeah. Um, you know, read. I, I like this one a lot. Read newspapers and magazines critically. And it's like, yeah, okay. That's. I don't. Again, I don't think anybody'd have. That the, there there are some websites I read that that's all they do is criticize. You know, reporting. Uh, use your vote. Good advice. Follow closely the actions of your elected representatives, which I think is a. a, a we don't, you know, we get we get so caught up nowadays. And well, what's the letter after their name that we don't necessarily oh, look yeah. at what they're actually doing? Yeah, that's true. Uh, and then uh, the the last two might be a little a little dicey nowadays. 
nine join political organizations and 10 be American first. That last one might tick off some people. Um, I would hope not, but I know it would. But again, not anything that I wouldn't recommend doing to keep yourselves well informed and well involved in your government. We have a uh, you know, a, a democratic republic that is a representational form of government. Mm-hmm. It works best when you are part of it. Yeah. So, you know, that 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 ultimately is the idea here is that, yes, the you know, was there really a threat of Soviet communists invading this country, whether through subtle or unsubtle means and taking it over? I'm sure that there were some Soviets that really wanted to do that. And I'm sure that there were some agents that did some things. Mm-hmm. Was it ever a real threat? It, the history books tell us no, no. but the, the, but the, these advice that this book is giving you is not a bad piece of advice. If it makes, again, they're square up, notwithstanding, because again, I still think this was, uh, this was clearly propaganda, the square up is there to make it look a little bit more respectable. But those are all good things that I think if we practiced a little bit more of that now, maybe we'd have less shouting matches on Twitter. But then again, as I say that, that's what Twitter is designed for is to have shouting matches. <laughs> so terrible. Twitter's shouting matches and Facebook has become like our parents' generation sharing misinformation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can't even. Um yeah, it's just uh, and, and what's interesting is that it, the, that idea of an external like you know the 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 big bad out in Moscow controlling everything, um, whereas the Kremlin did have did essentially set up puppet states in Eastern Europe. But as I was going over in the history section of this episode, um, some of them were um, more harshly run. Or were were more tied to Moscow. Like last episode, is talking about the East German government. And the East German government, you know, to a certain extent, took some orders from Moscow. Uh, but then you have um, like Ceausescu, and you mentioned Romania, who, you know, he got his, he played nice with Moscow, but really wanted to be his own thing because he was, you know, and I think you have a similar person in like Tito in Yugoslavia, where you have the, they were they were your bona fide kind of B-level dictator, which is a terrible way to put it because they were horrible people, but, you know, but they weren't on the level like Stalin. Um, it's just, uh, it's interesting to see, like, you know, did the, the, who the Soviets installed and who they worked with, and, and it's a lot more complicated than it's presented here, but your audience is not going to get any of the nuance of that because they're, that's not who, that's not who understands these things, you know. Um, the crowning achievement, according to this comic, and this is actually, this is one of those, again, the, the thing about World War III and Atomic War is that they all end as you get to the end of the issues that were published. There's a sense that we're going to win this thing, right? You know, we've started to turn the tide, et cetera, et cetera. At the end of this, we have this scene where this kid comes to the local magistrate and... Um, says his dad's got a shortwave radio and his mom still has some religious junk and they go to his house and he turns his parents in and they get, um, you know, they, they take an ax to the, you know, he shows them where it is. They take an ax to the, um, statue of the Virgin Mary. And he says, take my son with you. You've got his soul. Now take his body too. And the, and the commie says, you dope. Why didn't you check on what he was learning in school? 
and uh and then Jones who's the you know who's the um winner at the end ends up holding this uh this what's it called this victory party and uh, and then he dies of a heart attack <laughs> which yeah. Although I got to be honest with you, we know it's not a heart attack because this one guy says, I'll take over where Jones left off. Communism does not depend on any one man. His idea of government, which plans to rule the world, which I get the message there. But, it, you know, the, the spy movie, the, the Stalin, you know, the Stalin versus Trotsky and me person who knows that history. Of yes. is like you could probably have poisoned Jones and, you know, um, <laughs> there's almost an end of Animal Farm aspects to this, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> but but the kid turning in his parents, and it, which is also by the way very very Nazi Germany too. Yes, um, and and the parallel is not. I don't think the parallel would have been lost on anybody who was old enough to remember Nazi Germany. Um, you know the idea that you had because you know had they gone on and, and you know and had they gone on they would have been they were raising another generation to fight in the war, the ongoing war mm-hmm. until they finally ruled, you know, the world. Um, as, as the Disney cartoons so well put it, educated for death. If you've ever seen that one. Yes. Um, yeah, that's a, that, 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 that's another one. That's uh, I, I made, I, I made the mistake of watching that um, right after my second son was born. <laughs> so I had a two year old and a newborn and it's like, Oh, now I, now I feel fantastic. I, I I used to show that when um, I taught 10th grade for years and I would teach the uh, Elie Wiesel book Night. So we would do propaganda and I would show them um, I would show them examples of Nazi propaganda. Not not like I wouldn't show them like uh, Triumph of the Will or anything, just like posters and things like that. Um, but I would show them, OK, so here's some anti-Nazi propaganda and I would show them similar posters from, you know, the classic World War II posters, but I would show them uh, Donald Duck and Nutsyland, you know, the Der Fuhrer's face, yes. and mm-hmm. and this one as well, and that one as well. And it was very much a, a – Der Fuhrer's face is actually really, really funny. But Because um, yes. <laughs> I know it predates I Love Lucy, but there's that whole scene in Der Fuhrer's face where he's on the assembly line putting the caps the war, on the on the yeah. bullet shells. <laughs> and it's almost like Lucy and Ethel on the, on the candy – uh, assembly line with the <laughs> trying yes. to put the candy in the boxes. Um, but then Defuro's face, not Defuro's face, uh, Educator for Death is very much this. It's like, you know, he, he is, the, the kids have, um, either through manipulation or just sheer force have the ideology beaten, put into them to the point where, um, anything that would have been against them is, uh, is beaten out of them and they turn their own, uh, they turn their own parents in, which also goes to um, uh, 1984. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, uh, in the end, of, toward the end of 1984, Winston's sitting in a cell with his neighbor, and his neighbor is talking about how his kid turned him in, and he's actually proud of his kid for doing it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's one of those weird scenes. And then, of course, you have, like, other works, like Fahrenheit 451, for instance, has the, you know, your neighbor turning you. You're not you're not in, in a society like this. You're not safe because you, you don't have the freedom to express yourself, and you would have to do it, you know, in secret. And uh, so – but here, the the one for knowing, – knowing how – knowing how the KGB worked – and the stories that were coming out of Russia about the KGB, and especially under Stalin, and and gulags, and 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 how long people were imprisoned out in Siberia, um, through writers like Solzhenitsyn, etc. Um, 
it's one of the places where that one for one comparison actually wor- switch actually works in the way that it didn't necessarily work in say Captain America where there was a per- real threat in the Soviet Union that if you spoke out against the government or did anything in secret against the government were found out you were you were going to be doing hard labor right um, and you your family might never see you again because you mm-hmm. die in a gulag so um i I liked that aspect of this. I thought this was very, very good at getting its message across throughout. And, and, and the fact that it ended on the triumph of the communists is, um, it, I mean, it was, it was going there the whole time because it is called America under communism, but like you are kind of waiting for the war to start and it never happens. And then I, and then they come in again with the, you know, with the, uh, with the, 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 Ten Commandments on the back cover, but in the inside back cover, incredible. Did our story seem incredible? And it's just the same thing. And it's like, where do you come in? You are the one with whom the communist is struggling right now. You cannot assume your individual rights without assuming individual responsibility. If you want to keep on living in freedom, you must know who the communists are and their methods of working. You must recognize the communist party line in action. (laughs) So spy on your neighbors. Right. Yeah. Well, the irony of that is, is never, never really, you know, again, I, I talked about lack of awareness again. And it's like, uh, you know, they, they could be anywhere. So keep an eye on anybody and report anything suspicious. You know, it's like uh, oh, it's like, I don't know, Bill down the street. You know, uh, I don't like the I don't like the crease in his pants. Obviously, he's a dirty commie, you know. <laughs> Uh, and then, and, and just, and it, 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 you know, it further expands into literature where, um, Arthur Miller is very critical of this whole idea in the crucible, which is, uh, it's about the Salem witch trials, but it is much, very much an allegory for that sort of paranoia. And, and it's just, it is where we get the phrase witch hunt and, mm-hmm. um, and the idea of that, not all the people who were going after people for being witches were uh religiously motivated <laughs> some of them right. were just using were cloaking it in that because they wanted i don't know their neighbor's property or something like that so yeah um, i mean that that's always the thing about you know it's like uh yeah and that's always the thing about mccarthy in general yeah it's like you know i i have always from what i've read and everything i always think that mccarthy was what you'd call a true believer right mm-hmm. he, he he believed in his cause and that there really were communists that he needed to ferret out, whether he went about it right, wrong, otherwise. But once once you have that true believer that's willing to to see things that may not necessarily be there because of that strength of their belief, that's when the abuse begins. And that's exactly what happened there. And that's, you know, it's the same kind of idea is that, you know, like you said, with, with the Crucible. I remember that that was one that we did in, when I was in uh, – Oh, this is the Wayback Machine here. <laughs> tenth grade English, I think. I think yeah. it was tenth grade English, because um, yeah, that would have been American lit. Yeah. So, but yeah, but that's the same idea that that not everyone, the, the true believer believes that everyone has the same beliefs and motivation that they do, but not everyone always does. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yeah, and again, it's that that that's getting into the again the uh, the, the the red scare in, in general was was such a it's such an odd time and the fact that it was so centered on hollywood ma- makes for 
makes for just um, you know dr- the drama of it. Yeah. You know that it was it was people that you knew their names, but you didn't necessarily know who they were, and they got dragged before the uh, you know before the before HUAC and all that. Um, you know, there's and and what's uh, and, and Lord knows that Hollywood's still making hay off of HUAC. You know, uh, even in movies that you wouldn't necessarily think would have that, uh, they have that theme. What is the movie with uh, Jim Carrey? The Majestic was that the name of it? About the movie theater? About the movie theater, yes. Yeah, because I, I never saw it, but I know the movie you're talking about. So just no, – I'm not going to spoil it, but the, the setup is that Jim Carrey is a Hollywood he's – a, he's a screenwriter, mm-hmm. and he gets into a car wreck and ends up washed up on the beach, and he has amnesia, and he's found and brought to this small town, this small California town where he ingratiates himself into the town, and he runs the movie theater, The Majestic. Uh, but this is set against Kuwak, against huh. the McCarthy hearings, and it, it takes this weird turn in the third act, and I'm like, okay, I didn't see that coming. Because <laughs> I don't, I don't remember because I never saw that, but I just remember seeing the trailers, and it seemed like a like a Pleasantville esque sort of you know 50s nostalgia fest or something and it's it, yeah that does not seem like there was nothing in the in the trailers from and i'm sure now granted i'm trying to remember trailers and tv commercials right. such 20 years ago um there was it, nothing in it's that very yeah <laughs> it you know what it you know what it, it's um the the best way i can describe it it's capra-esque mm. okay so uh, that yes. it's uh, again, it's it's because Capra. You think about you, you think about Capra's uh, film specifically. Think about it's a Wonderful Life. Everyone thinks about you know the, uh, the they they don't necessarily remember the the aspects of that film that were that depicted the less savory parts of even even George's normal life. Mm-hmm. You know that didn't have anything to do with communism per se, but no. <laughs> you know, but old man Potter. He'd have gone in there and taken over, and he'd have privatized all of that shit if he could have done it. But you know. <laughs> it's late stage capitalism. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> late stage capital. Yeah, I with with with. Uh, I always think of the uh, the Saturday Night Live sketch with Dana Carvey, <laughs> where they beat the crap out of him. At the yeah, end. where they go and they lynch uh, Old Man Potter. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> well, I, I think I think that's a good stopping point. Yeah, um, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, my next episode will be about uh, civil. It will be more about these uh, propaganda. It will be about the civil defense office, um, their movies, and, and specifically things like that. So that that'll be out in May. Uh, but before uh, before I sign off, Luke, uh, why don't you tell everybody uh, where they can find you? Sure. Um, so uh, my uh, I, I do have a couple of uh, other places that if you've enjoyed listening to me talk, you can and hear more of me. Uh, my main podcast is called Earth Destruction Directive. That is a Daikaiju podcast. Daikaiju is uh, Japanese giant monsters. So Godzilla, Rodan, King Ghidorah, Gamera, and the like. Uh, that can be found at twotruefreaks.com. I am also one of the co-hosts on the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, uh, which is a horror podcast, primarily horror film, but we do dabble in some other other mediums. Uh, I co-host that with my brother Jason Giaconetti, the hair metal hero Chris Tyler, and Two True Freaks OG Chris Honeywell. That can also be found at twotruefreaks.com. And finally, I am the co-host of Get Back to the Wrestling. Finally, there is a podcast on the internet about professional wrestling. 
that is also uh, Two True Freaks, and I co-host that with my brother Jason and the Hair Metal Heroes. So if any of those sound interesting, please check them out. I'd really appreciate it. All right, thank you. And, of course, you can reach me by email at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. I will be back toward the end of May, where I will cover history from March of 1990 till May of 1990. And like I said... um, Propaganda films, things uh, pr- produced in conjunction with HUAC or the Civil Defense Office, uh, sort of the Red Scare, Red Menace uh, films of that variety. So until then, thank you very much for listening, and take care. Every day, every day that I'm away, and though I'll be alone across the Rhine. This has been an episode of Fallen Walls, Open Curtain a podcast mini-series brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. You can find show notes and other information about this mini-series and the blog Pop Culture Affidavit at popcultureaffidavit.com. You can find episodes of the show and other great shows at twotruefreaks.com. The Facebook group for this show is facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. You can follow me on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. All clips used are for informational and illustrative purposes only and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you very much for listening and come back next time for the next chapter in the end of the Cold War.